Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 63. Last episode, we spent some time back in Zululand hearing about the Amam Tetwa, the Amam Dwandwe, the Amatlubi, the Amatkwabe, and that little chieftain called the Amazulu. They were largely irrelevant in the history of South Africa at the time until Zwide's Amam Dwandwe began pushing southwards into Amam Tetwa territory. Then Dingiswayo's Amam Tetwa needed to bolster their flank, and that's when the Amazulu became much more important. We'll also return to the Cape where Governor Caledon was going to send a military man into the frontier to collect intelligence. First, it's time to feel the ancients and smell the southeastern coastal regions of the Zulu once more, my homeland. By the time of Shaka's emergence as a teenager, the area was covered with thousands of scattered imizi, looking like circular villages, if you had to look from the air, dotted through the countryside. Each married man, or umnumzan, lived in each of these umuzi with his two or three wives and children. A man of extreme wealth may also have had up to a dozen wives, and the umuzi would look more like a large compound with a dozen or more huts. The domed and thatched structures, the izinlu, were each single or separate rooms as part of a single home. The huts were about three meters in diameter, but the richer men would build huts twice that size, still small by modern standards. Some of these larger huts would feature more than one supporting pole. The Izindlu were constructed in a crescent shape around a central fenced-off area called the Izibaya, where deep pits were dug and then carefully disguised. The huts were hierarchical. The chief wife lived at the top, and each hut that was then built down the slopes was progressively less important. The retainers and the poor dependents would live nearest the entrance to the Izibaya. There would be storage huts where beer, vegetables and grains were kept, and these were constructed between the dwelling huts and the outer palisade. These umuzi were built close to water, and because Zulu country rains are generally good, they were self-sufficient. Women were the main tillers of the soil, heading off to the fields early in the morning and returning late in the afternoon. The staple crops by the early 19th century included Indian maize, sorghum, millet, pumpkins and assorted vegetables. Men would gather together at times and head out to hunt to supplement the diet of milk. They were also after the wild animal pelts, which were highly valuable. The men would ensure the huts were maintained, but their main occupation was herding the cattle, which provided milk and meat on special occasions. These hides were also used for clothing and for the all-important shields we heard about last episode. Remember that the cattle of the kingdom belonged to the nation and therefore to the chiefs and through them to the king. Each homestead managed these herds individually. The numbers were monitored closely by the king's men who'd make sure he wasn't being shortchanged or robbed. The king had a separate herd as well, but they were entrusted through the custom of ukusisa to individual herders who could use their milk and dung for floors and walls. They also ensured the calves were well kept. The changes coming, which we'll hear about in future podcasts, were underway before Shaka but he put the finishing touches on the system. This was to gain control of the self-sufficient umizi by regulating marriage. In Zulu society, an adult man could not free himself from his father's umuzi and head off to establish his own homestead without marriage. This was tightly controlled. A marriage could not take place until the woman's father had received the ilobolo from the prospective husband. Shaka was going to regulate this process even more by changing the women's regiments or groups into the Amabutu, and now they were there for one reason only, to set up marriage. They were products to be won only through his license, 
so to speak. He also took away the rights of the subordinate chiefs to form the young men into age groups or Amabuto of their own. All Amabuto would be answerable only to him. Each Ibuto would be recruited from across the entire kingdom and not based in regional groups. Only Shaka or someone he nominated could bring cadets together and form them into new Ibuto or regiments. Each had its own name, its own commanders and headquarters or Ikanda. The head ring or Isikotko was now like a giant wedding ring except on the head and only Shaka had the right to order a man to put on an Isikotko. These men could then become suitors of the women gathered in their Amabuto. He recognized the value of the Isikotko and exaggerated it and until the fall of his kingdom, the Isikotko was a sacred symbol of Shaka's power, his absolute prerogative over every married man's life. The Isikotko did not belong to the man, but to the king. Shaka went further. He alone decided as a privilege when to grant the Isikotko to an entire Ibuto, not to individuals. And that was basically only after long service. By withholding the right to marry until men were between 35 and 40 years old, approaching middle age, Shaka was denying them the status of Umnumzan. There would be no freedom, no household for himself until this point. Until then, these men would be called Izinizwa, unmarried youths. They would be directly managed by the married elders on behalf of the king. They would take part in the massive hunts that began to dominate the lives of Dingazwayo and then Shaka, where the plethora of types of pelts and furs and skins and feathers that were gathered about the men would give credence to their prowess and the prowess of the people. As we build the picture of this time, it's so important to keep track of the entire southern Africa, which was in turmoil. The expanding Khoisan raiders, the Trekpurs, the Amatkoza building their power bases in the south, and the effect of the growing Amandwandwe, Amamtetwa, and the Amazulu, we're going to set off a series of events that would shake the region to its core. And in some ways, this social earthquake continues. The period between 1808 and 1811, for example, was full of uprisings, rebellions, raids, and warfare. And one of these, in October 1808, was known as the Yehi Rebellion, or Shi Rebellion, which broke out when the enslaved people of the Cape rose up. It wasn't all slaves and koi involved. There were two Irishmen who joined the uprising. For three days, more than 326 enslaved laborers, indentured Koi, and the two Irish sailors participated in this rebellion, plotted inside a waterfront tavern in Cape Town, and launched from the Swartland wheat belt. The leader of this group was a 30-year-old slave called Louis van Mauritius. Louis from Mauritius, in other words. You've heard how closely Mauritius' history and the history of South Africa is intricately bound together already. The uprising was inspired by another uprising earlier in St. Domingue in the Caribbean. You've heard about that as well. This was a major event in the history of the Caribbean. It was over in 1804, and by then more than 300,000 people had died on both sides, the French and the slaves. It was led by Toussaint L'Overture against French colonists who ran the sugar plantations, and in 1804 the first black republic of rebel slaves had been created known as the Republic of Haiti. The uprising in the Cape was well organized, and that would be their undoing, ironically. The rebels took over more than 40 farms in the Swatland and captured the farmers and their families. However, they were careful not to commit egregious acts of violence against their captors, and then marched on Malmesbury, Blauberg, and finally Tiger Valley. 
They got as far as Salt River when Governor Lord Caledon dispatched a dragoon of cavalry from the castle to halt their advance. The ringleaders were dragged into court and their future was not rosy. Some have suggested that this was the first large-scale treason trial in South Africa's history, but I think that's putting a quite large cart before the 19th century horse. Those involved were not fighting for the freedom of black South Africans. They were fighting for their own freedom and couldn't really care less about the Amakosa or anyone else because the latter were not enslaved at this point. This uprising was a coy and slave revolt with a smattering of Irish rebellion thrown in for good measure. But a document written as a kind of manifesto by one of the rebels, Abraham van der Kaap, was read out in court and caused a shiver of fear to run through the colonists. Tomorrow, when the bloody red flag of battle goes up and the fight for freedom is complete, you will be able to address your owners as she, she, or she, you. Slaves had to use master, madam, or thou. The slaves were sick and tired of being treated like slaves. They fight for freedom and dignity, clearly expressed by Abraham van der Kaap. Sixteen of the rebels were condemned to death, but eleven of these were commuted by the governor, Caledon. Louis van Mauritius, Irishman James Hooper, Abraham van der Kaap, Jephthah of Batavia, and Cupido van Java were all sentenced to hanging for their role in leading the slaves in revolt. The rest of the three hundred odd were given a broad sentence for being rebellious and handed over to the owners for punishment or correction, as they saw fit. Forty-six others were sent to Robben Island. Among these were many men and some women from what is now Mozambique, Malawi, Zambia, Zimbabwe, Tanzania and the Congo. They were known as the Masbikers, the most downtrodden of the Cape slaves. This whole affair was not going to end the uprisings in the Cape, far from it. And Lord Caledon was concerned about what else was going on. Jacob Kyler, the Utenhag Landrost, had already been complaining about the tension between Nslambi and Nika over the kidnapping of Nslambi's favourite concubine, Tutula. The Fish River was the key to security, thought Caledon. He needed to send an observer around the entire country and beyond the frontier in order to bring back the most detailed and neutral report possible. John Barrow had done a sterling job more than a decade earlier. Now it was the turn of 33-year-old Lieutenant Colonel Richard Collins who commanded the 83rd Regiment when the Cape was seized. Collins was sent to the Orange River and Bushman country, as it was known, then on to the Zurfeld. When he arrived in the Karoo, significant meetings were to take place. That's where his party discovered another wagon of travellers on its way from Cape Town to Graf Reinet. Travelling with the wagons was 16-year-old schoolboy Andries Stockenström, son of the Graf Reinet Landrost, Anders Stockenström. Anders had served as a gunner on a Dutch East Indiaman and made his home in the Cape marrying a local woman. Lieutenant Colonel Collins was taught how to use a trekboer whip by the teenager and this teenager was to have a troubled life in public service that took him to the storm centre of racial politics in South Africa during the turbulent first half of the 19th century, as Noel Mostad points out. Collins asked Anders to let Andries travel with him, because the lieutenant colonel knew no Dutch. He agreed, and so Andries Stockenström began a career that would pass at astonishing pace through various posts of authority on the eastern frontier. We are going to hear a lot about this youngster as he grows old. Collins passed through the Orange River frontiers without incident and then descended into the land directly alongside the Kai River, the Eastern Cape, 
This was Hintz's land. As they crossed across the Kai, they found densely populated landscapes. Hintz's great place was nine hours' wagon ride east of the Kai on the banks of one of its tributaries. Further west of this, of course, was Ngrika, sulking by now, and further west in Schlampe. Hintze was the king who commanded all Amatkosa respect, and he had not yet agreed to meet Ngrika. Their relationship was described as chilly, but he did agree to meet the Englishman Collins. So, eventually, Lieutenant Colonel Collins rolled into Hintze's great place. First, there was an etiquette to be observed. Visitors would be received and formally offered accommodation. Then an ox would be slaughtered for food. Milk would be brought, but the chief would not be present. Usually visitors were told he was away on a hunt or he was busy with something or other. Most of the time, of course, he'd be in his kraal. This meant that the visitors could be summed up at a distance before any communication would take place. They would be grilled by senior officials, their intentions clearly spelled out. If anything was picked up that was out of order, the visitors would be sent packing, and of course the chief avoided the apparent discourtesy of sending away visitors himself. Two days later, Hintze decided they were not dangerous and received them. He was middle-aged by now and overweight. He leant on his favorite wife and held a dog on a leash. He was fidgety, thought Collins, and so was Hintze's dog. Hintzer warned Collins that the British could expect no solution to the problems of the Zurfeld from him. It was beyond the Great Fish River and therefore someone else's problem. His country, east of the Kai, was closed to both Ngrika and Enklambe. They were both unwelcome at Hintzer's great place. If they tried to cross the Kai, Hintzer said he'd hunt them down and drive them back westward. If they survived, of course. That's because Hintzer stressed, Sooner or later they would bring war he said. But Tungwa of the Kunukwebe was welcome, said the chief of the Kraleka. He liked Tungwa, but they would never move eastward through Ngrika's territory to come to his lands across the Kai because Ngrika would kill them. Tungwa was related to the 17th century Amakosa ancestor Chiu and was a fully-fledged member of the Chawe dynasty in the supreme lineage of the Amakosa. He had survived for years, torn between the two Rarabi chiefs in Slambi and Ngrika. But for how much longer could he go on? Hintz's great council gathered with him and Collins began his discussions of the future relationship between the English and the Amatkosa. Remember the previous fighting was between the Amatkosa of the Zufeld and the English, not the Amatkosa across the Kai. It was the Rarabi line being squeezed right now, not the Traleka line. Yet. Then Hintze said something that was key. He said that, Neither Ngrika nor Ntlambe or even the Tembu could slaughter an ox or milk a cow without asking Hintze's permission. Up to now, the Zufeld Amakosa and Ngrika had been inflating their importance. When it came to succession disputes, however, and the vital Chawi descent, Hintze was the man. All disputes would end up at his great place and his decision was final. The British ally Ngrika was part of this power, but he wielded less. Collins took note and bid farewell to Hintze, having confirmed their peaceful intentions, and set off to the Amatola Mountains where Ngrika lived. The price that Ngrika had paid for abducting the beautiful Tutula was high. It was two years after his defeat by his uncle, and he was impoverished. A few of his own children had starved to death. 
Lieutenant Colonel Collins found the Rarabe chief with only ten cows and very few oxen. He had refused to beg his uncle for help, which was part of Amatosa tradition for a defeated chief. Instead, he tried to force his own people to supplement his meagre herd. Ingrika asked Collins to obtain a few cattle for him as a dowry for a new Tembu wife, and Collins agreed to ask the Landros at Grafrenet, Stockenstrom Senior, to send the cattle. Collins noted that Enrique's subjects had vanished. There were numerous abandoned kraals on the way to his great place, so-called, in the mountains. Enrique had been forced to move his place way atop the mountains at the headwaters of the Kaiskama River, and here he seemed to occupy only a few square miles of countryside. Enrique railed against his uncle once more, claiming that all the land between the Kai and the Fish River was his. He asked for permission to move closer to the Cape Colony, and Collins was alarmed. Maker said he wanted to strengthen his friendship with the Christians, but Collins hedged. He knew that right now Nika was a spent force. The telling sign that he was a weak, a shell of a man, was that his all-important mother, Yesi, his confidant and closest ally, had fled to her own people, the Tembu. Nika had refused her permission to go, but she left anyway in the dead of night. Her former lover, Kunrad the Base, another of Enrique's confidants, was also cut off from the chief, living restlessly on the frontier border. One of Enrique's wives had also fled after being caught in adultery with another man. Enrique had killed him with his own hand. Things were falling apart. He had also developed an unfortunate dependency on alcohol and asked Collins for brandy and wine. His dependency would worsen from now on. As Collins prepared to leave, Enrique suddenly rode up on his horse and demanded that Kunrad the base honor an agreement they had. This was for Enrique to marry Kunrad the base's daughter. He couldn't, she was already engaged to someone in the colony, said Collins, but Enrique ignored this and continued to demand she be sent to him. The refusal of the British to support his claim angered the chief. The base's daughter was mixed race, she was part Boer and part Khoi, but he wanted this marriage to solidify the relationship between the Rarabi Amatosa and the colonists. So Collins left the destitute chief and headed on to meet with Ntlambia a few days later. Meeting him after the usual protocol delay, outside of Kral, about 15 miles inland from the sea, not at his great place, which was closer to the ocean, somewhere between the Sundays and Bushman's rivers, if you want to know, that was between modern-day Tlabecha and Kenton-on-Sea. Ntlambe was aloof and sent a message saying there were no cattle to slaughter, which, as you know, was a slight. All important visitors were provided with a slaughtered ox. Even the destitute Enrique had offered Collins, but he'd refused after witnessing the poverty of the chief. Ntlambe was doing far better and still refused to offer a gift to visitors. Not a good sign. Hours later, Ntlambe indicated he was ready to parley, and Collins sent a messenger to invite him to their fire, but he refused saying they should come to his fire. It was night when they made their way to Columbia's kraal, and he put on a show of power to welcome them. There was a full moon, but the coastal winds were blowing clouds scudding across the sky, adding to the drama. And Columbia was seated at the edge of the kraal, surrounded by his warriors and his counsellors. They had laid their spears in rows, circles of glistening iron, bright in the moonlight, shining menacingly. Lieutenant Colonel Collins was impressed. Ntlambi then began to control the interview. 
rising and offering his hand, and immediately interrogated the English soldier. Where you come from now? Of course, Ntlambe knew full well he'd been with his hated nephew, Inglika. From Inglika, Hinsa and the Bushman, said Collins through his interpreter. What business took you to Hinsa? To claim refugee slaves and deserters. Did you get them? Hinsa said he had sent them. What took you to Nika? Collins explained how the Christians wanted to be friends with Amatkoza and he wanted Nika's people to stop roving around the Boers' farms. Did you get what you wanted? asked Ntlambe. Collins said yes, the promise was for deserters to be sent to the colony except for Ogande, a man who said that Ntlambe had given him permission to remain where he was. Ntlambe appeared surprised by that. Did he say he had my permission? Yes, indeed. So, asked Ntlambe of the British soldier, what should he do to those who continue to rove amongst the Boers? You must know what you should do with disobedient vassals, said Collins. In that case, said Ntlambe, I shall do nothing. Collins must have been surprised by this, and then Ntlambe launched into a long list of grievances against the colonists who had attacked his people. Collins tried to argue with the Amakosa chief, who cut him off. So then, the first exchange between Lord Caledon's emissary and the most important leader in the Zurfeld had gone very badly. Ntlambe did accept the beads as a gift for his wives, then suggested they meet the next day. But Collins said he needed to leave that very night, and so they parted ways. I've spent some time detailing this conversation to reveal just how complex the negotiations could be at this time. Both sides knew full well that the exchange was a diplomatic duel, one of positioning and extracting information. What the British did not realise was just how much information the Amatkosa were receiving about the British and the colonists. The chiefs were extraordinarily well informed. Their intelligence sources included some of their own people who were working with the Boers by now despite attempts to keep them away. The Amatkosa were good listeners and collected detail by memory, no need to write them down. The Khoikhoi were even more entwined with the colonists, sometimes literally, and some of these had cousins amongst Tungwa's Tungwebe, and the Boers were ardent rumour mongers, spreaders of salacious information, indiscreet gossips. Information, whether completely accurate or not, circulated very quickly indeed. They had watched Collins's expedition closely, and his persistent questioning worried them. What was he doing collecting information as a soldier? And the Amakosa were highly aware of what that could mean. His principal objective was to calculate the military power of the Amakosa to understand their capacity to mobilize and their internal frictions. Hinsa was confident because he was a safe distance away from the British, whereas Nika was obsequious in his pleading and in Flambe cold in his analysis. The real message to Collins was his treatment by Tungwa of the Tonukwebe, who didn't bother to pitch up to their meeting at all. Collins knew something else by the time his wagons rolled towards Cape Town. Hinsa was in command of the Amatkosa and his people across the Kai, numbering around 10,000. He was safely ensconced across that great river, but the most powerful chief in the Zurfeld was in Tlambe. Collins estimated he had large herds of cattle and could call on 3,000 men, and Nika could only call on 1,000. Tungwa, who had the greatest claim of all to the Zurfeld territory, was the weakest. When it came to possible future movements of people, Hinsa would accept Tungwa's people, but he'd defend the Kai River against Tlambe and Nika.
And thus, Collins set in motion something that would seethe and bubble away, tear at the Amakosa like blunt scrapers for the next 150 years. Collins presented a plan to Caledon that would exploit the Amakosa's fractured politics by taking the idea of emptying the Zurfeld one step further. The conventional idea was to drive the Amakosa across the Great Fish River, leaving the area behind for the colonists. Collins suggested that they not only be forced over the river, but that they should be pushed even further east past the Kaiskama River. The land between the fish and Kaiskama would become unoccupied bushveld at first, like a green moat between the Trekboers and the Amakosa. The Great Fish River emerges north of modern-day Port Alfred, and the Kaiskama flows into the ocean south of where East London is today, at a place called Hamburg. That's an area around 50 kilometers wide, extending from the ocean to the mountains. Collins also planned that the Boers would be the principal instrument of hostility against the Amakosa. His report is certainly well laid out. It's mapped, it's numbered, it's thoughtful in its almost 18th century Renaissance detail. He handed it to Lord Caledon on August 1809, and South Africa would never be the same again. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the time. It makes the series more visible. If you have any comments or want to contact me, you can use the website desmondlatham.blog or desmondlatham.com. I'm also on Twitter. You can direct message me there at Des Latham. Until next, goodbye. Thank you.